This podcast is presented to you by Pastor Derek Armstrong and Word of Grace Community Church. For more information, please visit wogcc.com. Morning, Word of Grace. There you go. That's what I'm talking about. All right, everybody, wide and awake. You know, I thought that everyone would be wide awake because for some reason it's cold. And I don't know why it turned cold all of a sudden, and I'm going, what in the world? I remember exactly where I was a year ago yesterday. And let me tell you something, it was not near as cold as it was a year ago yesterday. I was at a friend's house, he had just bought a house, and he was having a housewarming party. And the reason I know that that was the date is because I also had another friend who had a baby, and he was telling me about how his baby was born, and the baby's birthday was yesterday. And so I know exactly a year ago where I was, and I remember what the temperature was like at that housewarming party, and it is not that way today. But that's okay. Let's be glass half full people. It's good football weather, right? Yeah, good football weather. So there you go. So thank you, Jesus. At least we're all still breathing air and still doing well. And uh, God is for us. Who can be against us? Amen. All right. So anyways, uh, uh, we just got robbed of summer, I think. But uh, let's go ahead and get ready to go into the Word today. Let's move on to more important things. We've been in a series in the book of Romans. If you have your Bible today, turn to the book of Romans in the third chapter. We've been leading up to this. The Apostle Paul is authoring a letter to the church that is in Rome, and this church is a church that is full of faith. These guys really know what they believe because there is fruit being produced as a result of that faith. That's what Paul said in Romans 1 and verse 8. He said, you guys, I've heard about your faith all throughout the world. The Roman church, I know about you guys. You guys are just really doing well, and I've heard about all these things. But then Paul goes on um, this uh, talk of sorts to explain to them why no one can earn righteousness regardless of the good deeds they've done, regardless of the heritage or the lineage that they came through. And Paul's kind of wrapping up that argument here in the third chapter. So if you have your Bible, you can go to the book of Romans in the third chapter. And if you're taking notes this morning, you can write down this title, The Turning Point. We're going to talk about the turning point not only in the book of Romans, but in our lives as believers. And I'm going to be reading from the NIV today, which I normally use the New King James Version when I preach because that's the one that I prefer, but I'm using the NIV today because I think it makes this passage just a little bit easier to understand and uh, really helps uh, clear some things up that uh, just some verbiage and things that I I like. So just so you know, I'm using that today. We're going to start in Romans chapter 3 and verse 9. Paul says, what shall we conclude then? Are we any better? He says, not at all. We have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are under sin, as it is written. There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They all together have become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways, and the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And I'm now not going to invite you to my three-year-old's birthday party, Paul. He says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced, and and so that everyone, the whole world, would be accountable to God. 
Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious or we become aware of sin. Here Paul is explaining in a summary what we call the total depravity of man, the complete uh, inability of man to save himself because of the way that he is wired. And the depravity of man really defined uh, simply means serving our own interests. So we're really wired to serve our own interests. And that just reveals that depravity of man. It shows that need of a Savior because it shows our fallen state. Because here's what depravity basically says. It says, I'm serving my own interests. If it benefits me, I'm going to do it. If it feels good, do it. If, if it's going to help me, if it's going to benefit my own interests, I'm going to do it. Even if it means I adjust my belief system in order to serve my own interests, I'll do that. And that's how a lot of people are wired. That's how we're wired from the get-go is that we want to serve our own interests. You don't believe me? A lot of people will be against something for a season until they have something happen in their life that changes circumstances. And when their circumstances change, then... So do their beliefs. Take, for example, someone who may be against people having money. Oh, I don't like it. You know, when people are rich, I tell you what, they need to give me some of that money. I don't think that anybody needs to have the kind of wealth that so-and-so has. And even though that they may have worked for it or maybe they were just uh, given, you know, the silver spoon in their mouth, how they were raised. And let me tell you, if I had that and this, and then all of a sudden this person either wins the lottery or they inherit a large estate, oh, all of a sudden their belief system changes. Why? Because their circumstances change and their belief system changes in order to accommodate their own interest. They serve their own interest based off of the circumstances. Just like when people uh, may be against lying. Oh, I can't believe so-and-so would, would lie or they would do this until all of a sudden the opportunity for a lie to serve my own interest greatly appears. And then I take advantage of that opportunity to lie, even though I was so against it before. It's the same thing people do with God. I serve God and I like God until I come across something I don't like or I come across something that doesn't line up with what I think or what I want. And I, and I read this about him, but oh, perish the thought. It can't be true, not God. No, no, no. I, I don't want to hear about that kind of God. So we will remove ourselves from that kind of teaching and adjust our own way of thinking to serve our own interest instead of being exposed to the truth. I tell you, when I was raised in church and the way I was raised, man, I had to make a lot of excuses for God. And I hated that, especially when I started out in ministry and preaching. I've been preaching since I was 15 years old, and I remember preaching sermons where there would be hard parts of Scripture. It was just actually easier to skip over those parts. Or it was easier to make excuses for God. You know, well, God's not that way, you know, anymore. That's, that's how he used to be. God changes all the time. Well, what about the scripture that says, I'm the Lord your God and I change not. I'm the same yesterday, today, and forever. What about that? You see, because if God is not faithful, if he is not consistent, then he's not worthy to be trusted. Think about people that are all over the place. Sometimes they keep their word, sometimes they don't. Man, you don't trust those people. You don't really put a lot of stock in what they have to say because they're flaky. They move with every whim or every little thing that comes along. But God's not that way. God changes not because he wants to show you and he wants to show me that he's worthy to be trusted. And so that means that he doesn't change. So here I am, 
feeling like I have to make excuses for God until it hit me one day. You know what? If I understand that the Word of God is not about me, but it's about Him, and it's the complete revelation of what God has for you and for me to show us His plan of redemption and to show us Jesus and to show us His heart and His will for you and for me, and I look at the Bible that way instead of looking at it about just a big goody grab bag that I can get out of it whatever I want to, treating God like Santa Claus, and I go, okay, if I look at the Bible the way that the Bible was written with the purpose it was written for, I don't have to make excuses for God. I don't want to live the rest of my life having to make excuses for God. How about we just read the Word and we see how God is? Instead of making excuses for Him, instead of serving our own interests where we want to adjust the way that we think or the way that we believe so we can serve the way we want it to be. It's why there are so many different divisions in the body of Christ because depravity wants to serve its own interest. Depravity wants to go chase after its own form of belief, its own way of thinking, its own way of doing things, instead of seeing what does God say about the matter. You see, God's definition then of evil is anything that is not in line with Him. Or let's say it like this more accurately, anything that isn't Him or anything He hasn't redeemed in relationship. Because He is the only good. Amen? God is the only good. You remember when Jesus was confronted by the rich young ruler. This guy comes up to him and he says, oh, excuse me, hey there, good teacher. What does Jesus do before he can even address him, before he can even ask him a question? Jesus says, whoa, 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 hang on a second. Why do you call me good? You don't even know me. You don't even know who I am. Maybe you heard about the fact that I fed 5,000 people and you heard that I've done some miracles. All you know are things that I've done and you just know about me, but you don't know me. So how can you come up to me and call me good? You're assuming I'm good, mainly because you're assuming you're good too. And he said, there's no one good except God. He puts the guy in his place immediately before the guy's ever allowed to ask him a question. Because what happens next? The guy says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And the guy says, well, you need to follow the commandments is what Jesus told him. He said, I've done that from my youth. And he goes, yeah, okay. He said, if you want to be perfect, how about this? Go sell everything you have and give it to the poor. And the guy turns around and walks away sad. Why? Because the way that Jesus confronted him, the way that Jesus, the weight of the truth that Jesus gave didn't fit the man's interest. Didn't fit the way the man wanted it to be. And so because of that, he abandoned it because he was looking for something to serve his own interest. And that's that just depravity of a man that wants to make God what we want God to be instead of learning who God is because he's the only good and he defines what is good through what is in communion with himself. So here's the thing. The truth is evil people are capable of very, very good deeds most oftentimes if those deeds are in line with their own interests. But the real need of man is not good deeds, the real need of man is communion with God. That's the real need here. It's what you and I actually need is to be reconciled into right relationship with God. We actually need communion with God. You see, Paul uses the Old Testament to help make his argument about this depravity of man, this serving our own interests, and really revealing to the Romans this depravity. And he does this 
by just going through these different scriptures. He said, there is no one righteous, not even one. He starts in verse 10. He says, as it is written. So then he begins to quote. He says, there's no one righteous, not even one. That's a passage from Ecclesiastes 7 and 20. He said, there's no one who understands. There's no one who seeks God. He said, all have turned away. They've all become worthless. There's no one who does good. No, not even one. He says, their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. And the way of peace, they don't know. There's no fear of God before their eyes. And then verse 19, he says, And we know whatever the law says. It says to those who are under the law for the purpose of this, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world is held accountable to God. You see, what Paul is doing here is he's revealing to the Romans. He's trying to get them to understand, and God is trying to get us to understand today, this great and deep hole, this great deep need for communion with God. And he does it by showing us our state, showing us who we really are. And we want to look at that and we want to go, oh, well, 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 well what about me? I mean, I was raised in church. You know, I, I can quote this many scriptures. I can do this. I can do that. And we go down our laundry list of good deeds that we've done in order to somehow justify ourselves in our own eyes. And it doesn't work because here's what Paul said in verse 19. He said, this is given so that everyone will be held accountable to God. He said, because all are under sin. He said, we have all sinned, we've all fallen short of the glory of God. He said, and everyone's going to be held accountable. Everyone is going to be held accountable to the holiness standard of God and then being faced with who they are. He said, therefore, no one is declared righteous through the law in his sight. Rather, the law, the purpose of the law, verse 20, is that we become conscious or aware of our sin. Amen. Wow, honey, I'm not sure if we should have come to church or not today. I mean, this is, I don't know about this. I don't really like this. I don't, I don't know. You know, that would be the case if that were the end of the story. You know, don't you hate it when those people come over to your house that just want to tell you what you're doing wrong all the time? They always want to point everything out. Well, why do you have that lamp over there? Why don't you put it over there? Seriously? Don't you hate it when your boss comes to you and he just wants to point out the things that you're doing wrong and he never gives you an answer? He never tells you what to fix or change? It's just all about negative, negative, negative and people that just want to gripe and complain about everything? Don't you hate being surrounded just by constant negativity and people that have no solutions, no, no, good, criti- no, no good critique whatsoever? It's all just negative, 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 no solution. Man, that weighs on you. It wears you down. And man, here we are reading in Romans the weight of all of these things that would seemingly just point out our faults, point out our shortcomings, point out our sins. And God would not truly be good if he didn't give us a way out. But guess what? He did because verse 21, the first two words, but now, are two powerful words in the Bible. Not just in the book of Romans, but in the Bible because it shows us that that's not the end of the story. That all of this, as bad as it is, we need to recognize it because it shows us our need. But that's not the end of the story. Verse 21, But now a righteousness from God apart from the law has been made known. 
to which the law and the prophets testify. He's saying the law and the prophets. What he's referring to here, if, if, if in your Bible the word law and prophets are capitalized, that's actually referring to the writings of the law, the writings of the prophets, what we know as the Old Testament. He's saying the Old Testament points to this promise. The Old Testament points to righteousness through this fulfillment of this promise and this faith that we're going to have in Christ. And that's what he's saying. It's actually been made known and testified about through the law and the prophets. Verse 22, this righteousness from God comes through faith. Look at somebody say through faith. Look at somebody like you're in church today and say through faith. That's what I'm talking about. He says the righteousness comes through Through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There's no difference. For all have sinned and all have fallen short of the glory of God. And are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in His shed blood. He did this to demonstrate His justice. Because in His forbearance He had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus Christ. So where then is boasting? How are you going to boast about this? He said it's excluded, verse 27. On what principle? On on that of observing the law? No, but on that of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from observing the law. Is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles too? Yes, he's the God of the Gentiles too, since there's only one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through the same faith. Do we then nullify the law by this faith? Not at all. Rather, we uphold the law. You see, this scripture here is the turning point. Verse 21 here, this is the turning point where he says, but now a righteousness from God that is apart from the law has been made known. He said, the law and the prophets have been testifying of this. And he said, we receive this kind of righteousness by faith. You see, the turning point for humanity is faith. The turning point for you and for me, the turning point for us as believers is faith. Because justification, that word justification means to be declared righteous, to be declared right in the eyes of God. And that only happens by faith. That's why Paul said in Romans 1 and 17 that the just shall live by faith. It's not something we earn. It's not something that we're trying to deserve or or that we're trying to uh, strive for. It's something that only comes through faith. In other words, you can't see it. You can't see it, but you know that it is real because God said it. That's what changes things. Not the fact that I see something. Not the fact that I know that I've been made right in the eyes of God by some outward thing that has visibly happened to me, but I know that I've received it by faith. It'd be easier if everyone who was just a a big unforgiven sinner just had a giant black X on their head. Oh, that person's a sinner. they got a big X on their head. And then when they came to Christ, then the X was removed. Oh, well, they must be a Christian. That'd be a lot easier because that'd be something we could see. But Jesus said, blessed is the man who has not seen, but yet he still believes. He knows that his righteousness comes through faith. It comes through trusting it. How can I trust this? Because God said it. Because God said it, and that's it. 
That settles it in my heart because if God said it, he's proven himself faithful through and through, and I know he's worthy to be trusted. And when I believe that God is worthy to be trusted, he shows me my need, he shows me the hole in my life through my own depravity, and I go, wow, I really need you. And I reach out and I put my faith and my hope and my trust in him, and I say, Jesus, I am yours. It brings this thing to a whole new level. Because it becomes more than just me trying to be good. It's me actually receiving justification through faith. Now, let's look on in Romans 4 and verse 1. Because he begins to talk about Abraham being justified by faith. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, discovered in this matter? If in fact Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about. Not before God, though. What does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, when a man works, his wages are not credited to him as a gift, but, to, but rather as an obligation. It's not like when you go pick up your check on Friday that your boss says, hey, I got a gift for you. Here's your paycheck. You're like, no, 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 no. I earned this one, buddy. And you look at it and you might go, and mm, I earned a little bit more. I deserved a little bit more because we look at it and we equate our time with what we see on that paycheck. And we go, no, this is something that I actually earn. And that's what Paul is saying about Abraham here. He said, listen, his, his, his wages are not credited to him as a gift, but rather as an obligation. So however, verse 5, to the man who does not work but trusts God, who justifies the wicked, his faith is credited as righteousness. David, King David, you guys remember David, David and Goliath? King David, the great king, the one who was a man after God's own heart. Verse 6, David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. This is what David said. Blessed are they who transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will never count against him. Wow, that's justification. God's not going to count my sins against me. He said, blessed is that man. You see, there's a promise being spoken of here that was spoken of in the Garden of Eden, that there was going to come a redemption for man, a reconciliation to where we could have that communion, that relationship with God. And the Bible says Abraham was justified by faith. As I began to study this, I found out that the Jewish rabbis, still even to this day, practicing Jewish rabbis believe that the faith of Abraham and the works of Abraham and the righteousness of Abraham is somehow placed in a storehouse of, of merits of type and that the nation of Israel, the descendants of Abraham, are given charge or responsibility of kind of divvying those out to the nation of Israel and that those things are actually you know, kind of running out. We're kind of mooching off of the righteousness of Abraham, in other words. In other words, the nation of Israel believes that they're just kind of coasting along because of all the merits and things that Abraham earned for them. And so I'm just riding on the coattails of what Abraham did. And that's how they look at themselves. And that's why Paul was addressing them because he knew that belief that he's even held to this day. And he was addressing, no, it's not by works. Let's talk about Abraham for a minute because you guys think you're coasting on the coattails of Abraham. The Roman Catholic Church believes the exact same thing. It believes that they have been given certain credits to disperse to the church, to people in their time of sin. That they believe that they have somehow been entrusted with these merits that have been given to them by God. That's why there was a sale of indulgences and 
and things like that uh, during some of the dark ages and things like that at the time of the uh, Reformation when you would see people would actually go uh, to the, the Catholic Church to go out and buy the permission to be able to sin. Hey, 20 bucks for this, you know, 50 bucks for that. And they would go and actually purchase the right to go sin. The reason they felt they could do that the reason that they felt entitled to be able to sell those types of indulgences was because they thought that there were certain merits that they had been given and entrusted with to disperse out to the people. And it's just simply not true because then that would make it still something that is about my work, something that I'm still trying to earn, something I'm still trying to deserve, something that really has no bearing of responsibility on my part. And God says, no, 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 I'm very much putting the weight of responsibility on your part, whether you're a Jewish person who grew up in this thing, whether you're a Catholic person who grew up understanding some things about God, whether you're someone who was raised in church, or whether you're someone who just got saved five minutes ago. I'm putting the weight of responsibility on you because you're not justified, because you're a part of those things. You're not riding on the coattails of someone else's good deeds or good works or their faith. What you are is you're someone who is an individual who has to make an individual decision to be trusting in what God says for you to be justified. Amen, somebody. You see, it's not an inherited righteousness. It's an individual responsibility that we have to make that decision. That's the turning point in our lives. Now, we may have been exposed to different environments that have helped to encourage that type of decision, that type of turning point that has fed that type of faith because Romans 10 and 17 says that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So how are we going to know to believe in what we haven't heard and how are we going to hear unless someone preaches? And so how is someone going to preach unless they're sent? Blessed are the feet of those who preach the gospel, preach the good news. So when you hear the gospel, your faith is to be ignited and stirred because it gives you hope because you recognize depravity. Because you recognize your sin and you go, whoa, I really need a savior. And then the turning point of that is faith, is trusting in what God said. Now, Abraham trusted in what God said. Here's the crazy thing. Abraham and David, both referenced here, lived before the time of Jesus. So how could someone be righteous before Jesus came? It says it was credited to them as righteousness. You see, they actually believed what God said before it ever came about. They believed that God was going to reconcile mankind unto himself, that he was going to redeem relationship between a fallen man and a holy God. They knew he was going to do that, and they trusted in him even when they didn't see it. It's easy to believe something when you see it, right? That's why Jesus said, you wicked and perverse generation that asks for a sign. He said, why are you looking for a sign? What are you looking for all these signs for? He says, you know, blessed is he who has not seen and still believes. That's what faith is. It's believing in what I don't see. And he goes on to talk more about Abraham. Verse 9, is this blessedness only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? We've been saying that Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness. Under what circumstances was it credited? Was it after he was circumcised or was it before? He said it wasn't after he was circumcised. It was before. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Hang on just a second. I thought that Abraham had this special covenant with God where he got circumcised and, and, and God gave him all these promises because of that obedience of that act. No, no, no. You see, the circumcision, he says, is just a sign 
of that covenant, of the fact that Abraham was already justified by faith. Actually, Abraham was declared righteous in the eyes of God by faith 14 years before he was ever circumcised. 14 years. So circumcision had nothing to do with it. You see, your works have nothing to do with your righteousness in the eyes of God. You are righteous and justified only by faith. Amen? That's the turning point. That's the change agent here. Verse 11, he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. So then, he's the father of all who believe but have not been circumcised in order that righteousness might be credited to them. And he's also the father of the circumcised who not only are circumcised but also walk in the footsteps of what? The faith of our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. It was not through law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he would be an heir of the world, but through righteousness that comes by faith. For if those who live by law are heirs, then faith has no value, and the promise is worthless because the law brings wrath. And where there's no law, there's no transgression. So therefore, the promise comes by faith. So you you see here, where, where Paul says in verse 15, He said, where there's no law, there's no transgression. So there has to be law. So we recognize transgression. So we recognize that fallen state. So we recognize the state of hopelessness. We recognize our need. And then we're pointed to the promise that comes by faith. So that it may be, verse 16, by grace. And it may be guaranteed to all of Abraham's offspring, not only to those who are of the law, but also those who are of the faith of Abraham. He's the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. He's our father in the sight of God in whom he believed. The God who gives life to the dead and calls things that are not as though they were. Verse 18, against all hope, what did Abraham do? He hoped. He hoped and believed. And so it became, he became the father of many nations just as it had been said to him. So shall your offspring be. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead, since he was about 100 years old, and that Sarah's womb was also dead. He did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but rather was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God. He was fully persuaded that God had the power to do what he had promised. This is why it was credited to him as righteousness. The words it was credited to him were written not just for Abraham alone, but also for us to whom God will credit righteousness for us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was delivered over to death for our sins, and he was raised to life for our justification. Amen, somebody. You see, here's the thing. The turning point in your life is faith. That's where things change. That's where we come to know Christ is by faith. Not by our works. We're not reconciled into communion with God through our works. It's through faith alone. Through trusting in something we cannot see, but yet we know that it is something that gives us hope. Something that we know because God said it. Because God spoke it. Just like Abraham said, uh, just like God said to Abraham, He said, You're going to be a father. And he's like, I'm a hundred years old, man. I am a hundred years old. I mean, Sarah, she has looked better. She is old. I am old. We have not had any children, and you're telling me now we're going to have kids. And God said, you're going to be the father of many nations. Instead of him arguing with God, and instead of him spending all of his time worrying, how are we going to make this happen? How are we going to do this? How are we going to figure all of this out? 
He said, I'm just going to trust God. It didn't happen immediately. It didn't happen even a year later. There was some time in between when the promise was given and the actual fulfillment of that promise. But the Bible says that Abraham still trusted God. And because he trusted what God said, it was credited to Abraham as righteousness. Because he trusted what God said. When we trust what God said, even when we don't see it, even if it may be years down the line, even if it may not be the way we want it, when we want it, how we want it, that's the turning point. Because guess what happens when you trust in what God said? You can rest. You can have peace that passes your understanding, that guards your heart and your mind through Christ Jesus. You can have peace that passes your understanding because you know what God said. Oh man, I can rest in that. Instead of me having to earn righteousness, instead of me trying to earn good works. No, I recognize my position and I go, wow, you've shown me who I am through your law, through your holiness. And and I recognize my need for you and I trust you to supply all of my need according to your riches and glory by Christ Jesus. And I rest. That's faith. Resting in what God said. But here's the thing. The turning point in your life being faith is not pretending that everything is okay, but it's rather trusting God for your need. A lot of people have this idea that faith is like getting on Mr. Rogers' trolley and going to the land of make-believe, going and chatting with King Friday and hanging out with Daniel Tiger. And they think that that's what faith is. It's just going on this crazy lie trip where we're pretending. We're using our imagination. Well, let me tell you something. You may get really good at pretending. You wake up and you put on this mask and you think that if I put on this mask and convince everyone that everything's okay, that that's faith. And then if I pretend good enough and hard enough and that doggone it, people will like me, that eventually, eventually, maybe what I'm pretending to happen will actually happen. Well, let me tell you something. You can put on your mask and you can fool me and everybody else in here like everything in your life is okay, but the trolley's going to come back around to reality and Mr. Rogers is going to take off his cardigan and his shoes and he is going to go home and you are still going to be sad and hopeless because you can't trust in your mask. That's not what faith is. It's not believing a lie it's not pretending like everything is okay when it's not you see i was raised up in a way that i used to i was taught that i had to had to be a certain way and act a certain way in order for something to manifest in my life and so you know even though i was feeling terrible even though i was worried or stressed out I, how are you doing today derek oh i'm uh i'm good praise the lord brother I'm too blessed to be stressed, and I'm too anointed to be disappointed. I'm the head and not the tail, and I'm above and I'm not beneath. And, you know, thank you, Lord. God is for me. Who can be against me? And, and, and I thought that was faith, just trying to stay positive all of the time and always just trying to pretend like everything was okay when it wasn't. No, 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 no. That's not what faith is. Faith is trust. And trust transcends how I feel about something. Amen? If I base my belief off of what I feel, then I'm trusting in my emotional or mental state of the day. And those things fluctuate, don't they? 
Our mental and emotional states fluctuate from minute to minute, sometimes from second to second. We can be up one second, down the next. So I can't trust in how I feel about something. Something has to transcend that. Something has to pierce that. So it's not just stay positive, think positive, keep yourself charged up, keep pretending, keep acting like everything's okay. No, it's me going back to God's word and me saying, what did God say? Because that's the turning point and then me resting in what he said. That's the difference. Because sometimes I can get all worked up and emotional. It's not so I can try to fix my emotions. It's so I can reassure myself of what God said. Because those things will flow out of that. That's where joy and peace flow out of. It's not how do I get joy. It's not how do I get peace. As if something to obtain. It's me realizing my need, depending on Him for my need, and resting in the fact that He's met my need. Amen, somebody. Man, I don't have to play. I don't have to pretend. I can... Oh, I don't have to make excuses for God because you know what, God, I'm trusting in your timing. I'm trusting in, 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 in your will. I'm, I'm walking with you, trusting in you, and I'm holding fast to the promise of God. And when Abraham did that, it was credited to him as righteousness. He said, you, you get me. You get how I operate. You, you, you get me. I want to have a relationship with someone who can trust me when I speak, who can trust that when I say something that it's, it's settled. That's, that's it. Because I know that you supply all of my need according to your riches and glory by Christ Jesus. You see, faith is not pretending everything's fine when it isn't. It's first recognizing your need. And that comes through depravity, realizing those things, and, and then your inability to meet that need. Because we don't trust in God oftentimes, if we're honest, for the things that we feel like are in the scope of our ability to meet. I mean, I can take care of that. It's just a matter of me disciplining myself a little bit better. I don't really need God. I just need better discipline for me to fix this issue or that in my life. And so because of that, I began to get my eyes off of him, and I get my eyes on myself instead of realizing my hopeless state and how desperately I need him. I go, oh, I can, I can discipline myself to make this area better in my life because, after all, it's all about me having a better life. And when I think that that's the goal and when I'm chasing after those things, then I'm trusting in myself. And I'm looking to myself. But faith is recognizing need. And then recognizing your inability to meet that need. And then turning towards someone who you have to trust to meet that need. That's what faith is. And listen, folks. It's not the sincerity of your faith that justifies you. It's not how sincere you are. Because there's a lot of people who sincerely believe wrong. They do. Go ask someone who was raised Buddhist, someone who was raised Muslim. They're very sincere. That doesn't make them right. There are even people who believe certain things in Christianity that are very sincere, but that doesn't make it right. Sincerity does not equate, doesn't bring the weight of truth. Just because you're sincere and you're really convinced about this doesn't make it true if it conflicts with what God has already said and established. So I have to understand his word. I have to understand his heart so that I won't be led astray. So I won't be led off into some, something that's going to cause me harm or something that's going to give me this false sense of hope. And I'm always chasing after something, trying to obtain something that I can never obtain or trying to work my way towards something or, or try hard enough to believe enough to be good enough to, 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 to get what I think that I really need or what I really want and chase after this thing that I'm never going to get. And it's never going to bring me satisfaction because I really don't realize what my need is. 
I'm just chasing after all this stuff, and I may be sincere, but that doesn't make it right. So it's not sincerity of your faith that justifies you, but rather it's the object of your faith. Who am I trusting in? You see, our faith is in God alone, and we recognize Him, and He supplies our needs. So the question then becomes, what is our need? What is our need? We, we really have a poor understanding of that word need, especially as Americans. We don't know what need means. We say things like, I need a nap. You probably do. Don't take one now. You may say things like, I need to watch the football game. Oh, snap, everybody's got nervous. I need to have another piece of pizza. Really? Do you need that? Do you need it? Do you really understand that word need? Because now the challenge becomes need. Well, Jesus Christ himself defined our need. And he did it in Revelation chapter 3. Revelation 3, this is the words of Christ, and he's speaking to the church in Laodicea, and he begins to describe for them their need. Revelation chapter 3 and verse 14, to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, these words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation, I know your deeds, that you're neither cold or hot. I wish you were one or the other. So because you're lukewarm, you're neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. Because here's what you say. You say, I am rich, I've acquired wealth, and I do not need a thing. But here's what you don't realize. You don't realize you're wretched, you're pitiful, you're poor, you're blind, and you're naked. I counsel you to buy, buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich. And white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness. And salve to put on your eyes so you can see. See those who I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am, I'm standing at the door, I'm knocking. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I overcame and I sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. See what Jesus did here? He uncovered need. You said, I'm rich, I've done well in life, I've figured all this out, I've got enough discipline in my life to be successful in my own eyes or in the eyes of man, and so because of that, I look to myself as being just a general, all-around, good old boy, just a good person who has done good things with my life, and we look at our own accomplishments as a source of righteousness and justification, and he says, you're missing the point. He said, you say you're rich and you have need of nothing, but what you don't realize is you're actually poor. You're actually broke as a joke. And he said, you actually need true riches, which is gold from me. But guess what? This just isn't any type of gold like what you've experienced here on earth. It's actually gold that's been refined in the fire. So in other words, I'm your source for riches. I'm your source for true wealth because you have a misconstrued idea of what wealth even is. Because Christ is saying, I am the one who has refined you through the fire. He said, if you realize that, he said, you understand true riches. And he said, you think you have all these nice clothes. He said, but you're actually naked. He said, and, and instead of you trying to clothe yourself, you need clothes from me. He said, and it's a white garment. It's a pure garment that I want to place on you. If you look at me for your source of clothing. If you look at me as your source of covering. He said, and then you're blind and you don't even know it. And he said, so you need salve from me to put on your eyes so you can see again. In other words, you are poor, wretched, blind, and naked, and you think you've got everything figured out. And Jesus said, no, you really just need to depend on me because I have everything you need. 
You see, when I trust in him and I understand need, then I understand where the answer is because depravity defines need. When I see depravity there, like the Apostle Paul was writing to the church in Rome, I see the depravity and I see the need, but then I also see that faith in the finished work of the cross of Jesus provides the answer. Amen? So it's not just about me understanding need, it's about me also understanding the answer. I think a lot of us understand the answer, but we don't know how rich and beautiful the answer is because we don't understand the depth of the need. If we understand the depth of the need, it will reorient our worship. It will reorient our praise. It will reorient the way that we live our lives. Because if we understand that the goal of humanity is to bring glory to God, and that's our purpose, is to live lives that bring Him glory, and we understand that we can't have communion with Him because of our depravity, but then Jesus comes in, but Jesus comes in the way, makes, he, he makes a way, He completely destroys the work that has been done by you and by me because of sin, and now we can have faith in the finished work of the cross, and the answer has come, and we can trust in Him. You see, the turning point for us as believers is faith. Faith in Jesus causes a shift where I place my trust. Depravity serves my needs, but faith serves God. That's why the Apostle Paul, I believe, wrote the book of Hebrews in 11 and verse 6. He says, without faith, it is impossible to please God. That's why you can't please God any other way. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. He said, how do you, how do you know that, that, that he has forgiven me? How do I know that he's made me right and reconciled me to God? I, I need to keep trying to earn my way or, or, or try to be credited somehow with the good things I've done. He said, no, you can't do it. It's not by works as any man should boast. It's actually by faith. Faith, the, the, the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. The story in the book of Matthew, it's the last thing we're going to read today. Matthew chapter 9 and verse 1. He says, the Bible says this, Jesus stepped into a boat. He crossed over into his own town. Some men brought a paralytic lying on a mat. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, your sins are forgiven. What? That doesn't make sense. He looks at a guy who can't walk, and he says, Your sins are forgiven. Jesus, you obviously don't understand what this man needs. Isn't it obvious to everyone here that this man who's lying on a mat, who is paralyzed, this man who cannot walk, isn't it obvious, Jesus, that his need is to walk? But yet you look at him and you say, your sins are forgiven? That, that, no, 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 you, you, you're blaspheming. He, he, you, you can't do that. You can't forgive sin. Why? Because I can't see whether or not his sins have been forgiven, can I? I can't go, there it is. (laughs) I can't do that. I don't know when his sins are forgiven, but Jesus said your sins are forgiven. And so Jesus, knowing their thoughts, verse 4, Jesus said, why do you entertain evil thoughts in your hearts? Which one's easier to say? Your sins are forgiven or to say get up and walk? Which one's easier to say? Let's just be honest. It's easier to say get up and walk because then we're going to (laughs) go, let's see. Sins are forgiven, we can go, well, I don't know if this is really happening or not. I don't know if this is legit. He said, get up and walk, and oh, he gets up and walk. Oh, that was awesome. We want to see the sign. But Jesus said this in verse 6. He said, but so you may know 
that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he says to the paralytic, get up, take your mat, and go home. The man got up and went home. When the crowd saw this, they were filled with such awe, they praised God who had given authority to men. He said, now that you understand, that's why I said it first. That's why I said your sins are forgiven. Because what if Jesus would have said, get up and walk. Oh, and by the way, your sins are forgiven. Well, yeah, I mean, come on. But Jesus didn't go that route. At first, he said, your sins are forgiven. And then he said, get up and walk. Why? Because he addressed what the man really needed first. That's what you and I really need. Because we're the paralytic man. We're him. Every one of us. We are the paralytic man. All have sinned. All have fallen short of the glory of God. And we are all wretched and hopeless apart from the one hope that we have. And that's Jesus Christ. You see, and when he looks at us and he says, your sins are forgiven. Not only does he forgive our sins, but he also heals and restores us. That's the goodness of God. That's the greatness of God. He has the power to both forgive sins and to heal. That's why God wants to do such an amazing work through you that's going to bring glory to him. But for that to happen, you and I have to first recognize our need and then put our faith in him. Amen? We all know that we need to get up and walk. We all know that we need healing from our wounds and our past and our scars and the things that have paralyzed us in life. We all know that. Even, even those that don't know Christ or seek after Christ know they need that. Everybody wants healing but they don't realize the even deeper need that's present. And we try to go about just fixing those things, and we never deal with the deepest need. The deepest need is forgiveness. The deepest need is righteous in the eyes of God. The deepest need is communion with the holy God, and that only happens through forgiveness that comes from Jesus Christ. It's by grace we have been saved through faith, not of works. Not lest any one of us could go around boasting about that. It's a gift of God. It's a gift, not something you earn, not something you deserve. It is a gift. And when we realize that, it helps us rest in the finished work of the cross because that's the turning point. Because if you recognize your need today, then put your faith in Christ. If you recognize today maybe that your state of self-serving and depravity has gripped your heart, then what do I do with that, Pastor? I feel like, I feel like I've been so prideful and and I've been trusting in my own ways what do I do with that that repent that's what you do with that you repent not enough talk in the church today about repentance or we understand that it's a turning away from that way of thinking that righteousness is somehow earned or deserved by me or that I I have earned or something's been, been credited to me because of my works no the only thing that gets credited to me is righteousness through faith the same way it happened with Abraham I love where Paul says in chapter 4 that is this justification by faith only available to Abraham? He says, no. It's now available to every one of us. Not just to David who believed and it was credited to him righteousness. Not to Abraham who believed and it was credited to him righteousness. But to you and I who have not seen Jesus with our own eyes. But yet we still have faith to believe that what he did was good enough to redeem mankind in a right relationship with God. And that gives us hope. We live in that hope. We live in that faith. We don't see the transaction happen, but we know he forgives. We know he heals. We know he sets free. And we trust that he's enough. For me, what he has promised, he's fully able to do. And faith is that turning point. So if you're depressed, if you're frustrated, if you're hopeless, maybe you're just clueless, 
Today, you need to know he's all you need and that faith is that turning point. Thank you for listening. For more information, please visit wogcc.com.